Hello to all the mamas listening. I'm Eden, Brittany's daughter. I want to let you know that us kids need our parents praying for us. Mama made a beautiful prayer journal to help you do that. Find the Head to Toe Prayer Journal at www.nohiracalling.org. Welcome to No Higher Calling Family. I'm Simeon. And I'm Brittany. As we seek to reflect Christ in our marriage and parent our children in a world defined by compounded confusion, we desire to anchor our hearts to the truths of God's Word. Join us on our journey. We hope to encourage you in your calling and equip you to pass truth to the next generation. Hey, thanks for joining us. And uh, we are starting today with the very first of our Bible study portion of the No Hair Calling family episodes. We'll be doing these uh, every two weeks on Mondays. The first one out of the month will be the Bible study portion, and then the next one will be just kind of a a subject matter one. But today will be the first of the Bible study portion, and we are excited. We're looking forward to digging in a little bit. Yeah, so we've announced this uh, several different ways over the past few weeks, but we're excited to see what the Lord will do as we try to make a little bit more of a heavy emphasis on helping the family and really just sharing with you how God's been helping our family. And on the No Higher Calling podcast, um, it's a not a new concept to do a Bible study, um, but this one's really unique in that Simeon joins me and we are doing it uh, with couples in mind. So if you have your husband around, grab him. This would be a great episode to listen to together. If not, you may want to postpone this one. Go back and listen to one from the archives. If you want to listen to something now, bring him in and listen to this one together because that really is our heart behind these Monday episodes this year with No Higher Calling Family is really just helping family and the foundation of the family unit is the husband and wife together as a team. So we are praying that the Lord will just um, bless this and use it to encourage you. So what we're doing is we're taking a couple out of the scripture, and we're going to be studying through that couple. Um, But what we've done is we have taken couples or people that aren't typically talked about in the realm of marriage, and we're trying to study those people out. Um, Some of which we will bring out will be people that you definitely know, and like today's couple are people that if you've been in church for a while, you'll know who they are, but they're not talked about in the marriage, uh, with the marriage perspective in mind. We won't be hitting Joseph and Mary and Adam and Eve, not the uh, star couples of the Bible so (laughs) much. Right, yeah. We're going to be hitting the bench warming couples for (laughs) for a few weeks, and um, I think think it'll be good. It'll be good and interesting. Um, because some of these some of these couples are are definitely not people that you want to emulate, and we can bring out their negative qualities and um, and talk about how the, these are shipwrecks that you can avoid in your own marriage. It's good to remember in Timothy it says that all scripture is profitable. Um, you know, sometimes we tend to hit the highlights, especially in marriage. You know, we want to reflect good examples. You have, you know, we're talking about Elimelech and Naomi. Uh, here today, that's usually not the couple that you focus on when you come to the book of Ruth. Everyone's enamored with the love story of Ruth and Boaz, and rightfully so. It's beautiful. Um, But God has something, really a lot of some things. We've learned a lot studying out this couple. Um, And I've said it, goodness, hundreds of times on this podcast, but the podcast is really just an overflow of our life and our family. And so that's what these episodes are going to be. As Simeon and I are studying these out for our own individual um, growth and our own marriage growth, uh, you get to hear the overflow from that. So uh, grab a tea, grab a coffee, grab your husband, and join us as we share with you some of the things that God's been teaching us about this particular couple from the Bible. Okay, so today's couple is uh, Elimelech and Naomi. And they are found in the book of Ruth. And we are, I'm going to read just the first five verses of the book of Ruth because this is the only portion of the book in which Elimelech is actually alive. And so we're going to read through these. And um, Ruth is not a long book if you want to just take the time to read through the book. But um, we'll read the first five verses of the book and we'll talk about this couple. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, 
And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malan and Kilian died, also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So just a quick recap on what's taken place here. Basically, famine came, and this family decided that they were going to move out of the safe haven that was Israel for the people of God, and they were going to move into the country of Moab, which were Israel's enemies. Because uh, apparently in Moab there was bread and there was plenty to eat, and so they picked up their family and they moved. And in the course of the next little while, the man, Elimelech, and the two sons, Malan and Kilian, all died, leaving the uh, wife, Naomi, and the two sons, their wives, Orpah and Ruth, widowed. And um, so that is how the book of Ruth begins. In the course of what we want to talk about today, we're really focusing in on this couple. We're talking about Elimelech and Naomi, um, their, their relationship. And so if we begin to dig in, I think the first thing that I noticed as we were reading through um, in the first verse is it talks about this occurring in the days when the judges ruled. And so if you're to put your brain in the proper biblical perspective, there's not kings yet in Israeli, Israeli history. Uh, Saul hasn't come on the scene. And so we're, we're talking about the period of time between the prophets and the, or excuse me, between the, um, the Old Testament prophet uh, uh, and the conquering of Canaan and all that kind of stuff. And then the um, Samuel and the kings were to come after this. So it's that kind of time right in the middle when they didn't have a king but God, and so they would turn away from God and God would punish them, and then they would come back, and then they turn away from God and God would punish them, and then they come back. And so that's what's going on. That's the context we find ourselves. And we're in one of those times in which they've turned away from God and God has sent a famine to punish them. So just to put this in reference in history, they're actually living during Gideon's rule as judge. Um, but I found that it was really interesting that as we study really through the book of Ruth as a whole, we see a deeper need here. Um, Israel needs more than just a judge. Israel, really mankind as a whole, we need that kinsman redeemer. Um, And that is so evident as we go through this story. But a couple of things just laying the foundation um, that I thought were really interesting. In Judges 21-25, It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Um, And that's what Simeon's talking about here. This day of the judges, um, there was no king and men just did what was right in their own eyes. And, you know, we want to be really careful as we go through these couples of the Bible that we don't read into it and put things there that weren't true. But also sometimes when we come to, you know, Bible characters, Um, We forget that they were people, just like we're people. Um, This was a husband and a wife that had real life struggles and issues and things. And so I do think that it's good um, to kind of put yourself in their shoes and think these things through. You know, we tend to be so quick to judge like, oh, well, they shouldn't have left Bethlehem. But we don't exactly know what all of their reasoning might have been. Some of the things that we we tend to forget sometimes when we're doing Bible study is these are real normal people. Um, And I think Ruth highlights that in a way that several other books of the Bible don't. Most of the books of the Bible follow what we would consider are like the important people. This particular book follows normal people, which I think is important. Um, So Elimelech and Naomi are just a normal couple. But when we look at what their names mean, I think that'll give us a little bit more of an understanding of who these people were. So we did a little research. We wrote some of those things down. Can you um, talk about Elimelech? Yeah. So Elimelech's name means my God is king. 
which we just found quite ironic um, because, you know, you think if you were declaring someone as king of your life, king of your heart, king over all that you do, um, you would be very much in subject and in submission to said king. Um, but we find as we study Elimelech and Naomi, we do not really see Elimelech. Uh, he he makes some big decisions. He makes decisions um, for his family that are very impactful. And yet we do not see him regarding his king. We do not see him inquiring of his king. You know, it's really interesting too. Let me just, I think you're going to talk about the kids. Yeah. Um, but really quick, as we also just giving some context of the names of the places that are mentioned here. Bethlehem literally means house of bread, which is where right. they were living. Yeah. House of bread and they're out of bread, you know? Yeah. And I mean, okay. They, there was a famine. There was a famine in the house of bread. Um, but that famine was there as, as a discipline, as a curse, as a call to repentance. Right. Um, but it is just, and we're going to get into that in a little bit in just a minute here. Um, but it was really interesting to me that the man whose name means my God is king did not consult his king on leaving the house of bread um, because of a famine to then go to Moab, um, which was actually known. Uh, we find in Deuteronomy 23 verses 3 and 4, Moab was known to withhold bread from Israel. Um, Moab was descendants of Lot. These were actually cursed of God. That uh, incest relationship that Lot had with one of his daughters, that's where these people of Moab came from. So they were not friendly to Israel. And there is Bible scripture saying that they withheld bread from Israel. And yet this man leaves the house of bread to go to the very people who were known for doing that. Yeah, in in that passage, they are looking just to cross through the land to get to the promised land is all they're wanting to do. Um, And the people of Moab were so upset that they were going to be going through there that they not only withheld bread, but they wouldn't let them pass through their borders. And, um, and God ended up like dealing out serious punishment to the people of Moab for that. Um, and they held a grudge against Israel ever since then and continued to be a thorn in their side the entire time they were in the land. So it was a big deal. Another thing I thought was really interesting too, in numbers 25 verses one and three, um, like Simeon was saying about how Moab, it, it was Israel was a thorn in their flesh. They wanted to do anything they could to see Israel destroyed and defeated. And one of the ways that the Moabites sought to see the demise of Israel was they encouraged the Moabite women to intermarry with the Israeli men, knowing the power that a wife has over her husband. Which, as we look through this, I mean, we find both of Elimelech's sons. Or I think we're jumping ahead of ourselves. So we find yeah. both of them. Um, it's just, just falling in this this pattern that really was not God's perfect plan for this family. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm going to come to Elimelech's defense a little bit, not because he did the right thing, but I want I want us to understand where he probably was at mentally. Um, oh, by the way, his wife's name means pleasantness, Naomi which is why when she gets back um, after losing her husband and her sons her, and her sons and comes back with her one daughter-in-law, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, um, which means sorrow. Um, and so, but um, anyway, Elimelech think in his reasoning, he's, he's a man he needs to provide for his family. Um, and he is now living in a land that is in famine and his two sons have very interesting names and in Jewish culture, they would name their children based on what they were supposed to become or based on what they currently were. Um, so at times, you know, sometimes people were named something because they had hopes that they would become something. Um, but a lot of the times in the scripture, their names are prophetic. Um, these young men, their names were Malon, which means sick and, Killian, which means pining or hungry or consumption, uh, consumption in the sense like tuberculosis was called consumption. So these two men were not healthy, most likely as children, which would be why they would have been given these names. Sometimes in, in Hebrew culture, the midwife would name the child, not the parents. And so it's, it's entirely possible that these men were born ill 
and were not expected to live. And then they did and they grew old enough to get married, but obviously they didn't live very long because we read in, in verses number four and five that they got married and then they died and there's no children to speak of. So they most likely died quite young. Um, so, but this, this man, if you're thinking about Elimelech, why did they make this decision to leave Israel? You've got two young men that are in your home that quite possibly are very ill or not very strong physically. And now you're in a famine. And so him and his wife, they're probably worried to death that they're going to lose their boys. And they're making decisions based on worry and, uh, and emotion rather than making their decisions based on the promises of God. Well, the funny thing about the decision, um, you know, in, I guess, preservation of their sons, the trip from Bethlehem to Moab was 50 miles of very rough terrain and they didn't have buses and airplanes. So this is like a seven to 10 day journey. So I think we just see here again, going back to Elimelech's name, meaning my God is King. We just see a lack of him really interceding with the Lord, I think, on behalf of this decision. He also doesn't, he doesn't know his history very well. Um, if you look in verse one, it says that there was a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, who went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So his original idea was not to settle down, was to travel um, and just to be there as long as the famine and then go back home. Um, that is his original thinking. And then we find that his sons end up getting married and they're not going anywhere. Once the sons get married, their their roots are down and they're probably not going to go anywhere at that point. But his original plan was, we'll just hop over there until the famine's over and then and, and come back. But that happened in, I mean, Israeli men would have known the stories of Abraham going down into Egypt during famine and that was never good either. So it was never a good idea to leave the place that God has you to go somewhere else, unless God specifically told them to go somewhere else. Well, another thing too, that, you know, they should have the history of Israel to look back on and see is God was always very clear when he was judging Israel. Um, it usually wasn't kind of an ambiguous, like, are we being punished because of wrongdoing? Like God let them know you got out of the way and I'm punishing you to get you back in the way. Um, but Elimelech fled in fear instead of repenting in humility. He, he could have looked back on the history of Israel and seen, okay, when God judges, if we get our hearts right and get back in alignment with him, he is merciful and, and he blesses and he restores. Um, but he disregarded that, past, uh, just continuance of God's faithful character and his mercy, um, and really just let the circumstances of the situation, I think dictate a lot of his decision-making to kind of drive the point home uh, of what you're talking about. The, um, Leviticus chapter 26, 19 through 20. The, the reason why we're using a lot of this old Testament passages is because these are scriptures that they would have had access to. Um, Elizabeth chapter 26, verse 19, it says, And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. And this is a passage in which, in which the Lord is talking to his people and saying, If you turn against me, one of the tools that I will use is famine. And... Think about it this way. If you are disciplining your child or when you were a child, if you don't have children, if when you were a child and you were being disciplined, um, were you supposed to run away from that discipline or were you supposed to take the discipline and learn from it? When God was disciplining his people, they weren't supposed to run away from the famine that they were receiving. They were supposed to learn from it, repent and do what's right. And in this case, Elimelech and Naomi chose to run away from the problem instead of staying. And And I find it interesting, too, that they had another option. If you look in the passage, these people left with everything they had. And it says that there was a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
And it talks about um, how they took all the things that they had and they went into the country of Moab. And then when they came back, um, at least two of them came back, um, Naomi and Ruth came back. They came back with nothing. They took all their goods out and they came back with nothing. And they, when they left, they should have stayed. Not only should they have stayed, but they should have stayed and worked with their neighbors, helped take care of each other. That's really what they were supposed to do during famine. Um, the tribes were supposed to take care of other tribes. The families were supposed to take care of other families. That's how they were supposed to operate. And when they left, they not only deprived themselves of their neighbors, but they deprived their neighbor deprived their neighbors of them, and they couldn't help others. And then when we find when they come back and they're empty, it's their neighbors that end up helping them. <laughs> so I just find that comparison interesting. I think it's a really good lesson to learn here too that we have to be so careful of the impact that the influence of our marriage has on other people. Elimelech and Naomi were prominent in Bethlehem. We see that when Naomi comes back, um, it's not, you know, who's this random stranger? Does anybody recognize this woman? No, the town's a buzz. It's Naomi. Everybody knew who this couple and who this family were. Um, and they had the opportunity to encourage the people to turn back to God, to repent, um, to see his wrath stayed and see his mercy extended. Yet this couple used their influence um, really in a negative way. They ran. And, you know, with whatever their reasoning, whatever their logic, however they explained that away, the fact is um, they left and others stayed. And our just our choices affect so much more than just us. Um, you know, it affected their children. It affected their uh, their daughters-in-law. It affected so many other people. I think we just have to be very careful um, just to be a wise steward of the influence that God gives to our marriage and our home as a family unit. Yeah. What I was referencing was verse number 21. Uh, when Naomi says to call her Mara in verse 20, then verse 21, she says this, I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. And I think that that phrase basically captures the effect of the decision that Elimelech and Naomi made for their family. The effect of their decision was that they left full seeking to protect the things that they had and they came back empty. And Jesus in the New Testament would say something very similar. He would say, if you would keep your life, you'll lose it. And if you would save your life, you'll give it to me, is, is the connotation there. That, that he, that would, he that would lose his life will save it. Um, but he that desires to keep his own life will lose it. And um, the idea being that we, we don't live for the things of this earth. They are temporary. They're, they're not going to last, but we live for things that are eternal. And um, that's what I was getting at earlier when I said that if Elimelech and Naomi had chosen to stay, they could have used what they had. He, she said they left full. So they could have used what they had to help their neighbors who were starving to death. Um, and instead, they took their goods and they went over to Moab hoping to keep what they had and to survive longer than anyone else. And they ended up being the ones that died early. So we've laid a lot of context, um, the time period, these cities, these people um, let's make this practical. So what are our takeaways? What does this mean for us? And I really think if you want to jump in, we, there's something, I don't even know where we found it. Um, my dad actually has it on his refrigerator, but it's this little piece of paper that has six scriptural tests when making a decision as a family. And it was just, it was so good because it's Bible and you can't go wrong when it's Bible. But so much of what we're talking about here, I, I think so much of what we see in Elimelech and Naomi and what it teaches us for our marriages really is foundational in what do you, how do you make decisions? How do you make the right decision when you've got difficult circumstances and you're trying to be a wise steward of your family and take care of your children and just all of these different things, what happens when life goes sideways and you don't know what to do? Um, so I think we're just going to kind of just try to make some practical application really hitting at that point. Sure. So the, um, whatever this is, wherever we got this from, I don't know, but it's good. Um, six scriptural tests and it gives, it lists the six tests and here they are. The first one 
is the proclamation test. And the test asks, has God clearly proclaimed it to be wrong in his word? Um, so right off the bat, Malin, or excuse me, not Malin and Killian, um, Elimelech and Naomi's decision uh, goes directly against God's word. They're supposed to stay in the land. They're supposed to stay there and to be fruitful and to multiply and to lift up the Lord's name. Uh, number two, the principle test. This test asks, is it forbidden in God's word in principle? This one can be a bit muddier if you're not if you if you're not familiar with all that the Bible says, but some things are not explicitly stated, but rather talked about in various ways throughout the scripture. We I would use the um, the scripture about alcohol for for me personally. We've had did a whole episode on that particular topic, um, but that is a thing that I find in principle in the Bible that you should avoid that completely. Proverbs has a lot of principle things. You know, one thing that our pastor in the states, Pastor Sexton, always said is, "If in doubt, don't." Mm-hmm. And I think that saved me so many times before in my own decision making. Um, and I think that really falls well under this principle thing where God's word doesn't say yay or nay. It's a little more gray area and you're trying to figure out, well, principle, what is God's word saying? But if there's any doubt there, um, hold off, yeah. keep thinking, keep praying, keep seeking wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Scott Pauley often says, don't doubt in the dark what you knew in the light or something to that effect. Um, the concept there is is really good. So if you if you know something to be true, don't doubt it when things get hard. I don't think uh, Elimelech and Naomi would have left if things weren't hard, but they left because things were hard and they weren't they weren't passing this principle test. Um, the third one is the partnership test. The test the test asks, could I invite Jesus Christ to do this with me? Um, in their context, are, they would be asking the question, "Would is the presence of the Lord going with me? Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, the answer is no. And that is such a scary place to be as a family. You know, and I, I think God sometimes leads families to do scary things. Just, I mean, <laughs> using our own story as an example, I mean, we crossed an ocean and left everything we knew, but we knew the presence of the Lord was going with us. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes as a husband and wife, just because it's uh, you, there's apprehension there, there's just an unknown factor, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. Sometimes God asks you to step out on the water and trust him to walk on it. Um, but I do think it is, it's a really good thing to think of under that one. Making sure that as a family that you are, do not remove yourself from the presence of God. Hopefully later in this year on the family episodes, we'll address the idea of living within the hedge that God gives. There's some verses in the Old Testament. God talks about putting a hedge about things, but you want to keep yourself in that hedge of safety because when you remove yourself from there, you're vulnerable. And we see that so clearly in this couple. Yeah, I, I think of Moses when he was speaking to God. God was moving his people, and Moses says to him, if your presence go not with us, send us not up hence. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Moses is saying, look, if you're not going, I'm not going. I'm I mean, not going honestly, anywhere. it would have, and it's hard to say because, you know, I'm not the one starving, but it would have been better for them to endure the famine and whatever that brought, yeah. yet remain in the presence of the Lord. Yeah. The next test is the presence test. It asks, would I be ashamed to be found doing it, thinking it, or saying it upon Christ's return? Um, this one is given, uh, the scripture written down here is Philippians 1.20, um, but honestly you could use, a, there's at least three different instances in which Christ gives a parable with this theme, him leaving servants something to do and then coming back and they either have or haven't done it. And um, that's that's the concept. If you got caught in the middle of it, would Christ be happy with what you're doing? The fifth one is the purity test. It asks, is there any glory for God in it? Um, every decision that we make is a decision that either brings God glory or brings God shame. Um, and so it should be something that we that we know that God can be happy with, that we made a decision that brings him glory. Number six, the peace test. This test asks, after praying about it, is there the least bit of doubt in my mind. If you doubt it, don't, which is what you were talking about earlier. Um, 
So, I mean, in this, if, if Elimelech had taken the time to pray about it, if he'd taken the time to go to the local Levite priest and ask, he would have gotten the answer, don't go. It's entirely possible that he did get that answer and just ignored it, but um, we don't have that recorded for us. Yeah, in Proverbs eleven fourteen, it says that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And I think that's a really another good thing to bring up when we're talking about making decisions as a family. If you have a big decision and you just can't seem to come on an agreement as a couple or you can't seem to get peace, um, it is wise to seek advice from other people who have sound biblical wisdom. Now, you don't want to just go to anybody, you know, go go to a wise as someone that can give biblical counsel. Um, But there is wisdom found in a multitude of counselors. I want to hone in quickly on um, the man Elimelech, and then you can talk a little bit more about Naomi's side of things. Um, We talked a bit about the sons. They're just briefly mentioned, um, but obviously they were pre-marriage when they left. And at some point, we don't know exactly how long they were gone, but at some point during their travels, those boys got married. They grew up, they got married, and they were adults. Um, so again, we don't really know how long this took place, but I don't think it was very long. Those famines at maximum usually were only a few years. So they were probably teenagers when they left. And Elimelech, I, I find it interesting, if you look at the first few verses of the passage, um, Elimelech is the focus of the passage. It talks about the very first verse says there is a man from Bethlehem, Judah, and it puts the the impetus for the decision on Elimelech. And so, guys, this is this is the sobering truth. You make decisions as a couple. You talk about things. But at some point, a decision is made and action is taken. And at that point, we're the ones that are responsible. We men have a tendency oftentimes to subcontract the spiritual to our wives or to our pastors or our, the Christian school or whatever the whatever organization we want to blame. Um, but we have a tendency to subcontract our responsibilities for the leadership of our family and not just the financial leadership and the physical leadership, which is what Elimelech was obviously worried about, but the spiritual leadership of our home. We can, we can prove that Elimelech was a poor spiritual leader by the fact that both of his sons married Moabite women. Now, God uses this story in a, an amazing way to redeem one of those Moabite women. But the fact of the matter is, Malan and Killian had no business marrying Moabite women. They had no business being in Moab at all. And that really falls on the shoulders of a man who was worried about their financial and physical well-being, but not worried as much about their spiritual well-being. You can look all through the Old Testament, which the Old Testament is, is a picture of spiritual truths for us. In the New Testament, it doesn't matter where someone's from. What matters is, are they a believer? Um, so in the Old Testament, it mattered that they were not part of the Jewish people. Now, there were people on the outside that became Jewish people, people like Rahab and others, um, that were not born Jewish, that became Jewish by choice. But these people were not. They were Moabites. There's a whole um, conversation between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, and they're obviously not believers at that point. And um, so they, his sons get married to non-believers, and it's a direct result of the decision that he made right here. Men, we, we cannot be so wrapped up in providing for our families, quote, unquote, that we fail to provide for their spiritual needs as well as their physical needs and their financial needs. Many of us men, we pride ourselves on working and working hard and taking care of our families and making sure their needs are met. And that all of that is good. The Bible says that a man do- doesn't provide for his families worse than an infidel. But if we provide for our families physical and financial needs to the neglect of their spiritual needs, we will end up shipwrecking the future of our families, not just financially and physically, but most importantly, spiritually. You might have kids who grow up to be extreme financial successes, but it won't matter if they gain the whole world if they lose their own soul. Elimelech's decision to leave Bethlehem started a domino effect of other decisions that came after it 
that led further and further and further away, really ultimately from Jehovah. And we see that in he lets his guard down in his parenting, which ultimately led to his sons, these these boys that grew up knowing the Lord and, and the history and the mighty acts of God choosing to marry Moabite women. And um, there's just, there's never a time to let your guard down in your parenting. And we have to be careful that we understand that our decisions, it, it's not just a single decision. Life is decision after decision after decision. And each one greatly impacts the next and what path you are on. Now, let's just insert here. Um, you know, God can redeem broken stories. God can redeem broken legacies. And that is the beautiful overarching story of the book of Ruth. Yes, this couple should have stayed, but they didn't. Um, but God still received glory and God was still able to display himself as kinsman redeemer through the picture of Boaz um, and really set a, a path where the Messiah would come from. I also want to mention something that's in my notes that I forgot to talk about, but um, Elimelech, by removing his family from Israel, took his family out from under God's insurance policy, God's life insurance policy, which was that when he died, his family is supposed to take care of his immediate his wife and his children. All right. So he dies in Moab. There is nobody to take care of his family. Then his sons die. There's nobody to take care of their family. If they had stayed in Israel when he died, Malan and Killian obviously would have been responsible to take care of their mother. But if they died like they did, then the immediate family was there to take care of all of them. There was already provision for them in the worst case scenario. But because Elimelech had led his family out of God's will, he, he, he had eliminated the safety net that God had given him. Now, in, in my life, I don't have a, uh, a safety net that's like scripture built <laughs> like that. But I do have scripture that says that God will provide for all of our family's needs. And when we, when we trust and we f- and put faith in what God says, he will take care of those details. Um, if I remove my family... From that safety net, I can trust that that God will take care of my wife and my kids because they're believers. But that doesn't mean that they're going to have the things that they should have because I removed them from the hand of blessing that God had them in. And so as men, we have to be so careful. The best thing you can do as a man financially and physically for your family is to keep them in God's safety net, wherever that might be. Now, for me, God's safety net moved to Australia, and if I didn't move with it, then I would have taken my family out of that safety net. So knowing what God's will is for your own life and for the life of your family is so important to leading your family in the right direction. Well, I think, I mean, just, you know, observing you as my husband and what you've shared with the men in general, men have a innate desire to steward their families, um, especially Lord willing Christian men are wanting to steward their families well. But I think Satan can so often distract between a biblical stewardship and a worldly sense of stewardship. You can be able to cover all the bills and make your family comfortable and and take all of the vacations and provide on a very earthly sense, which, hey, I'm not saying that's wrong. Simeon's a wonderful provider and we are comfortable and I'm thankful. Um, But be so careful that it is not to the neglect of the spiritual stewardship. And that's what we see with Elimelech. In an earthly sense, he was really trying to steward his family well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a spiritual sense, like Simeon said, he left his wife destitute. Um, I mean, Mara, bitter, nothing left. What do I do? Um, she, I mean, she literally had to come back to Bethlehem. She, They were humbled eventually. You know, instead of humbling themselves initially in repentance to God for the punishment that he was bringing upon that house of bread, um, they did flee. Naomi came back and she was humbled at that point. Um, But look how much she lost Mm -hmm. because of that. 
A modern real world example of this exact thing is when a family is a part of a really good Bible preaching church and then somebody gets a job promotion and they move and the place that they move to does not have a good godly Bible preaching church. Um, you're moving out into the desert. And if you're going to do that, um, you better make sure that the place that you're going to has a good church in it. That was, that was one thing I'll say about my dad is he did his research before we took any moves with his jobs and things. He, he knew where the churches were, where we were going. He knew the good ones and we got plugged into the good churches wherever we were going. And, um, we only moved twice when I was at home, but both times we were in excellent churches and um, I don't think he would have moved us somewhere where there wasn't a good, solid Bible preaching church. So just a couple things as we wrap up here about Naomi. You know, nothing really is said of Naomi's opinion on the matter. Um, did Elimelech consult with her? Did they chat about this at night? Did it keep them awake, um, you know, debating, should we, shouldn't we? We don't really know. Um, it doesn't tell us either way whether he made this decision along with her, with her agreements, or if he made it and she was in disagreement. We don't see that. Um, but either way, Naomi follows her husband. And, you know, I know sometimes this can feel very abrasive to us as women, especially if we feel like we know this is not the right decision and yet you are uh, being stubborn and you want to make it anyway. But ultimately, our place is to submit. And if it is the wrong decision, it's God's place to be the judge and God's place to be the one to work on the husband. Now, I'm not saying that I don't think that you should talk about it, that you should make decisions together. Simeon and I do that. Um, you know, if there's a decision to be made really big or small, we ask each other's opinion. We pray about it together. We seek God's counsel on it together. But he is the man and he is the leader and he makes that choice. And while sometimes that can feel like it leaves us a little second rate, I think it's actually a protection that God gives to us as women. Submission is a protection. Like Simeon said, yes, he gets to make the final say, but he's also the one that answers to God for that decision. Um, you know, Elimelech, he was the one that answered to God for the path that he put his family on, whatever Naomi's opinion on the matter was. Um, but just a couple of verses here that I thought were really good just to really support the point that God wants a husband and a wife to be a team. Um, he has a perfect order. And yes, the man is to lead and the wife is to submit, but God says two are better than one. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, it says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. In Amos 3, verse 3, it says, can two walk together except they be agreed? You know, I don't know any other relationship in life where you walk together more intimately than in a marriage relationship. And God wants you to walk together. He wants you to be um, that oxen that's equally yoked. And so often when we hear that passage from the New Testament about, you know, the equal yoke, we think, okay, well, believer and non-believer. Um, but it goes beyond that. You can both be a Christian and be headed in different directions. But God's desire is that you be equally yoked. The best way to lead your family, to establish a godly legacy for your children and those to come after is to be equally yoked, headed towards the same goal. And the goal should always be the Lord. So we see that in Naomi's, you know, in this case, there's just a few things that I took away. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us what part she played in this decision, um, but it's just something to think about. And, you know, the Bible clearly states in, in stories of Bible characters and in Scripture alone that a woman has a very powerful influence over her husband. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. We were just talking today about, you know, could you imagine being married to a perfect person? Like, how amazing would that be? My first thought was that'd be really annoying. And then I thought, well, no, because I'd be perfect too. <laughs> <laughs> if you're both perfect. 
Um, but look what they threw away. And, you know, Simeon made the comment that Eve was so perfect. Adam was so enraptured with her that he wanted, he would do anything to keep her happy, to keep her his, um, you know, which led into <laughs> the mess that we're in now. Um, but, you know, in Proverbs, it talks about uh, the woman. She, a wise woman buildeth up her house with her own hands, but a foolish woman plucketh it down with her own hands. We have a very powerful influence over our homes and, and ultimately over our men. Um, and we need to steward that well. Again, coming back to the stewardship, we kind of railed on the men about biblically stewarding the family well and their marriage well. But we as women need to do that um, in the same way. Yeah. Women women have no idea. Good women typically have no idea how much power they actually wield. Bad women tend to understand how much power they wield. Um, you're wielding it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you look at women in the Bible that are bad examples. You've got women like Jezebel. You've got women like Herod's... Uh, Herodias. Herodias. That whole relationship's weird anyway because it's his brother's wife and all this kind of stuff. But you've got that whole situation where she convinces him to behead John when he doesn't want to. And and you've got, you know, Samson and Delilah. And there's so many. Yeah. Then you have like Abigail. Yeah. Who married a fool, but yet still was able to use her influence in, in a positive way over her foolish husband. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's uh, it's so evident again when, and again. Yeah, and, and if, if godly women could get the same understanding of the power they wield that ungodly women naturally have, um, there would be a such a positive impact on Christian families. I, I can't even describe the positive impact it could have on Christian families. I mean, there, there have been so many times in our life and marriage where, you know, it's not like I was headed for total catastrophe, but there have been so many times where I was discouraged and I got picked up or where we needed to make a decision. And for whatever reason, God gave you wisdom. He didn't give me. And those, those kinds of situations do come up. And if a woman who is godly and in in the right way can bring those things to her husband and to the Lord, amazing things can, can happen in a family. So my takeaways from this point is just one, women, we need to realize the influence that God has given us. Two, we need to keep our hearts step in step with our king. We need to to be the spiritual godly women that he desires for us to be, the spiritual wives. Um, you know, in Proverbs, Simeon was talking about the bad example, how the, you know, the the bad women know how powerful they are. And we see we see that. Um, just promiscuous, uh, strange woman, as Proverbs talks about it. Her lips are always dropping with honeycomb. She knows how to use her words. She knows how to use her body language. She knows how to use the womanly influence that uh, God gave her for wrong. Um, So how much more do we need to use our words, our tone, our body language, Um, to encourage and build up our husbands. But we cannot do that if we are not step in step with the Lord. Um, And then just ultimately get behind your man. Whether that is, you know, as as you talk things through, um, as you pray for him, just stand behind him and be his supporter and seek to have a relationship that when tough difficult times come where these doubts are arising and you don't know what direction to go, um, that you can make sound biblical decisions. And one other verse I thought that I'd share, Isaiah 41.10, I wrote down the question, what do you do when scary situations arise? Because we're all going to have them. You know, we might not have a famine that we're trying to run from and save our family from, but we all have unexpected things that come out that threaten to remove us from the presence of the Lord. But Isaiah 41, 10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. If we stay in that hedge, if we stay in his presence, if we stay in that safety net of his promise, he is with us. That does not mean 
that things are always going to be, you know, sunsets and roses. Um, But it means that he is with us. And that is ultimately the safest place that we can be. So if we take the things that we've read and we have studied out and we talk about this particular couple in the Bible, we learn from them. And um, like we mentioned in in 1 Timothy, it talks about how all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. And so some of these people, we think, you know, why is Elimelech's name even recorded in scripture? Because it doesn't seem to be important. It's recorded because there's something to be learned from him. And there's something to be learned from that couple and and how they interacted with one another and what their life ended up looking like. And so um, we'll we'll keep doing this. We're going to have 11 more of these this year. And um, so, you know, uh, we thought about titles for this, but we're going to call it the odd couples of the Bible, you know, <laughs> undesirable. Yeah. I think that's what we landed on. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we're looking forward to doing this study with you and I hope that uh, you learn as much from it as we have. Yeah. And as much as we are enjoying putting in the work of gleaning for ourselves and then getting to share it on this platform, I mean, it's just, it's a blessing that God has given us this opportunity. Take it from here, sit down open your Bibles, talk together as a couple. What is God teaching you? It could be something totally different than he's teaching us. Um, but that is our heart behind these No Higher Calling Family episodes and specifically these Bible study episodes is just that it will whet your appetite and uh, give you a starting point that from there you can go on as a couple and say, okay, God, what do you want to teach us from Elimelech and Naomi? So make this personal um, make this something that you just walk with us throughout this year and use it to strengthen your marriage. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope that the No Higher Calling podcast has been a blessing to you. If so, please subscribe, share with your friends, and engage with me on Instagram at nohighercalling underscore. You can also subscribe to receive the No Higher Calling encouragement email on my website, which is www.nohighercalling.org. This includes podcast notes, what I'm reading, spiritual encouragement, a glimpse into my home, and some of my favorite products and resources. You can also enjoy more content on the No Higher Calling YouTube channel. I pray that this podcast will encourage you to fall more in love with Jesus and to be the Christian woman he's called you to be. Thanks for listening.